Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest today is Francoise Bayless. Uh, she's a university research professor, part of the Dalhousie Medical School. And we're going to talk about um, the ethics, the bioethics of um, you know, genetic engineering and various other topics. So, Francoise, thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Well, if you would, tell me about your work and a bit about your background, how you started your work. So I'm a philosopher by training, and that means uh, I have a particular interest in questions to which we don't have ready answers. So I'm interested in questions where there's discussion, debate, and a desire to kind of move forward, but recognizing that we're not necessarily ever going to get to authoritative answers. And so you really have to bring the quality of rational thought and argument to a particular problem. And the problem that we're interested in today that seems to be of interest to both the scientific community and society writ large is whether or not we should proceed with making heritable changes to humans. In other words, making changes right now to human embryos, to human gametes, with the idea that the children born would have altered genes and any children they would have would also have those genetic modifications. Yeah, as you're saying this, I think, I don't know if it includes everything, but I think there's three types of ways to look at, uh, how would I put it, I guess, well, I guess evolution. You know, one is a lot of people say it's random and, and mindless. And then some people say it's, you know, it's all designed by God. And then some people, this is, I guess, the third version is that, um, you know, organisms are actively adapting to their environments and changing over time and kind of figuring out what's best for them through their own, you know, their own nature, their own cellular engineering. So I guess with those three perspectives, which one do you have or which one do you see that, that people have and how does that shape the, you know, the discussion on it? Well, I think we're at a very interesting juncture in terms of the possible with respect to human reproduction. And the reason for that is there was a time when reproduction happened more or less in private um, through sexual relations. And not that long ago, uh, if you think about it, you know, we're looking at just over 40 years, scientists working with clinicians were able to take the human embryo and create it outside of the body and then transfer it back into a human. So in that context, you have a very direct human intervention in a process that before others would have called natural reproduction. And when we started this, people talked about it as artificial reproduction. Today, we talk about it as assisted human reproduction. But what you have is that became, if you will, a platform on which we were able to add a number of different kinds of interventions. And so one of the ones that many people will have heard about is prenatal testing, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So the prenatal testing is what would happen if you're reproducing in a traditional way and people are trying to get access to information about the developing embryo or fetus within a woman's body. But with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which was developed in the early 1990s, the embryo is outside of the body and scientists are able to biopsy the embryo and look at some of the genetic information and on that basis make a decision to either transfer that embryo to a uterus for reproduction or not 
transfer the embryo, but rather discard it or use it for research purposes. So what you have there is the move from, if you will, a natural kind of way of reproducing to a way of reproducing that includes human intervention, but the human intervention is in the context of selection. You are choosing or not to transfer a particular embryo because it does or does not have certain traits. Well, today we're on the cusp of doing something very different. So we are moving from selection to design, and we have the first births in the last 10 years. I say the last 10 years because we've had children born through a technology that involves uh, mitochondrial donation. We've had children born with ooplasm transfer. And in 2018, for the first time, we had twins born following heritable genome editing. And so if you will, that's the trajectory I see. We've moved from natural reproduction, that's about sexual relations, into a context of assisted human reproduction where people are able to manipulate the gametes and the embryo outside of the human body and make decisions about which embryos are transferred. And then we move to the final stage where we're actually manipulating that genetic material, changing that genetic material because we've made a decision that we don't like some of the traits that this embryo would have were it to be transferred and to go on to reproduce another human. Well, all right. So what are some of the, that you've observed, some of the top ethical like hot points or issues surrounding this? Well, I think one of the important things to appreciate is that this genome editing technology is actually welcome in a broad sense because it portends the possibility of being able to offer therapies, treatments to people that have certain conditions where we're able to identify a genetic cause. So what's really interesting and important to appreciate about this technology is that it can be used on different kinds of cells. So we have two kinds of cells, basically non-reproductive cells, which are our somatic cells, and reproductive cells, which are the sperm and the egg, for example. So in that context, what happens is if we make changes to somatic cells, body cells, non-reproductive cells, so I'm talking, you know, skin cells, blood cells, brain cells, we're actually able to make changes, hopefully, to those tissues in order to treat diseases. For example, sickle cell disease or Duchenne muscular dystrophy or what have you. The difference, though, is that if you make changes to the reproductive cells, those changes, if you will, do not die with the patient. Because you've changed the reproductive cells, it not only changes the being that will be born, but any of their progeny. And so many people see that as a flashpoint. They see that as a moral dividing line. It's the Rubicon. It's something one should not step over, if you will. So many people are prepared and enthusiastic about being able to offer what we call somatic human genome editing so that we can offer therapeutic interventions to people who are suffering currently because of certain genetic conditions. But that's different from actually starting to manipulate gametes, to manipulate sperm and egg to ensure that people with particular traits are born and that all of their children and their children's children will carry on with these genetic modifications. Well, I guess right now, 
you know, if someone smokes, uh, looks like they're affecting their children, their children's children, possibly, you know, so epigenetic change, I guess, already is a behavioral form of a heritable change. But this is, uh, well, man-made, I guess, by third party instead of the person themselves or, you know, brought to what? bear. So it would, again, what are the... What are the pros and cons that you're hearing? You know, I'm sure you're in a lot of debates about it. So like, what do you hear are the main issues? Well, I think there are a number of issues here. And so I think it's absolutely important to pay attention as you've alluded to, to both environmental and genetic factors on person's development of their traits. So I don't want anybody to think that we are just our genes, we are not. So we do need to pay attention to what we call gene environment interaction. We do need to recognize that who we become is also a function of our environment and our genes interacting with our environment. So yes, there are many ways in which we affect our children and it's not just in terms of the genes we do or do not transmit to them. But I think one of the things that people are particularly concerned about are the ways in which this technology could be used to entrench discrimination, could be used, if you will, to introduce a new kind of techno eugenics, could actually result in harm to the children that would be born following this technology. And I think it's in that context that many people, myself included, have been asking, if not you know, arguing that it's really important if we think we're going to contemplate going down this path, and the path I'm alluding to here is the reproductive use of the technology of human genome editing, that if we're going to go down this path, we need to have a broad social discussion, debate about this, because what we're talking about doing is, and here I'm using a metaphor, we're talking about changing the human genome. And I'm arguing the human genome belongs to all of us. Now, why is that a metaphor? Because there's no such thing as the human genome, right? But what we are saying is that if there's anything we have in common, it's our genetic heritage. And if we're going to go down the path of manipulating it, we ought to have some clear goals and objectives. And everybody, not just the scientific community, should be involved in those discussions and those debates to try to understand how can we use this technology for the common good? And if we can't find a way that we could be using it for the common good, then maybe we ought to pull back and invest our time and talent in other kinds of areas of science. Um, <clears throat> what, so what are some of the, I guess, newest technologies that you see are, I don't know, are turning heads or causing the most discussion or the most contentious? Well, I think the birth of the twins in China in late 2018 was seen as uniformly controversial. I say uniformly because it wasn't unanimous. There were a couple of scientists that did not see this as controversial. But by and large, if you were to go back and scan the news media at that time in late November 2018, when Heijian Kui announced to the world that twins had been born from genetically modified embryos, there was not shock and awe in a positive sense, there was shock and disdain. There was this sense that something had been done in a context that was not to be celebrated, but rather to be condemned. Now, what Jean Cuhey and his team did 
was try to manipulate the CCR5 gene. And the goal was to try to make these embryos that would become children resistant to HIV. And many people argued, and I think would still argue, that this was uh, an unacceptable use of a technology in a context where there were many questions about safety and efficacy, but also there was not broad societal consensus that we should be moving forward with this science. So one of the things I think is really important to understand is we've known that scientists are working in this domain for a very long time. And what happened is that in 2012, CRISPR technology really comes on the scene. And many uh, of your listeners will know that uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna were recently awarded uh, the Nobel Prize for the work that they did. But with this CRISPR technology, we really have a revolution in biological sciences. And it's in 2015 that we have the first published paper showing a research team making genetic changes to human embryos. Now the 2015 research that was published did not include the transfer of those genetically modified embryos. So this were researchers working in a lab with what are called non-viable embryos, coming up with conclusions, showing issues in terms of uh, safety and inefficiency. And in that context, the world responded to say this was premature. And we held in December of 2015 in Washington, DC, the first international summit on human gene editing. At the close of that summit, the organizing committee of which I was a member issued a statement. And in that statement, we said very clearly that this is research that should not proceed unless and until we have safety and efficacy, which is addressing science concerns, and we have broad societal consensus, which was addressing ethics concern. That happens in 2015. Three years later, we have the announcement that twin girls have been born from this very technology that three years ago we said should not proceed without evidence of safety and efficacy and broad societal consensus. There's another summit, the second international summit. And at the end of that, the organizing committee of which I was not a member issued a different statement saying, it's time for a translational pathway for this kind of research. And so what you see there is a shift at least within the scientific community to say, we're going down this path, we need to do it better. That led shortly thereafter in 2019 for a call for a moratorium. And the purpose of that moratorium was to actually provide the time for debate and discussion that could hopefully move us towards broad societal consensus. So just to sum up, my own view, and I think it's transparent from the fact that I was part of the 2015 First International Summit Organizing Committee, is that this is an area of science that is controversial and about which the world, society, has the right to participate in discussions and debate about where this goes. It's too important to be left to the scientific community. 
alone. So we need to address issues of safety and efficacy. We need to address issues of broad societal consensus. Um, the uh, twins that you were speaking about, so I guess now they'd be three years old if they're still around. Is anyone, you know, do they go in for testing? Are they okay? Is anyone looking at them? So the two twins were given pseudonyms, Lulu and Nana. And in fact, we know very little about them. And the reason for that is early on, once people were made aware of their birth, the Chinese government and a number of other people argued that it was important to respect their privacy and not have them be permanent research subjects for the rest of their lives. And so in fact, there are very few people that do know much about what has happened to them. We do know that there has been a third birth. So this person would have been pregnant at the time we learned of the birth of the twins. So we now know that there are three people. I don't believe that there are others, but I could be wrong about that because nobody at this point, given the uproar, would be announcing with glee that they too had accomplished this particular feat. So what we know is that there are three children who have been born. And what I hope is that they are in fact being properly cared for and followed by the medical community uh, in China, so that if there are any health consequences and challenges, that they can be offered appropriate medical care and attention. You need to understand they've, re in effect, participated in research. And so we owe them uh, high quality medical care in case they suffer any harmful consequences from this research. Well, other medical procedures that we do have data for, like in vitro fertilization and other ones, what does that data look like? Um, are some of these interventions successful? Are there trade-offs that are becoming apparent? There are certain trade-offs, um, and I think it's very difficult to understand how one makes those trade-offs. Uh, some of the trade-offs are actually for the women, the women who participate in this and their own health. It is known that some people, um, as a result of this, experience very severe health consequences. One of them is called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. It can require hospitalization of the women. That's how serious it can be. And in very rare cases can, in fact, result in death. We do also know that there can be problems, health problems for some of the children born. In the early days, many of those problems had to do with multiple births. Some people might remember Octomom, who gave birth to eight children at one time. Now, that was exceptional, but there were many, many triplets, many, many twins. And the reason for these multiple births is because in the early days, there was a tendency to transfer many embryos at the same time. So the children would be born premature. They might be low birth weight. They might have to be in the um, ICU. Longer term, uh, there are starting to be some long-term follow-up studies showing that there are some challenges for these children, but there's no one knockdown study. And part of the reason for that is not all of these children are being followed. And the reason for that is that if you think about it, the women or couples interact with the healthcare system in order to get pregnant. And once they have a child, they're happy and they're gone from the healthcare system in the direct sense of people interacting with their providers that help them to become pregnant. If they are interacting with the healthcare system because their child has a health challenge, it's different 
people in the healthcare system. You're now dealing, for example, with pediatrics. And it is not the case that all of this is connected so that we're able to do proper follow-up of all of the children that are being born from these technologies. What we do know, as I said at this time, is that at least three children have been born from this heritable human genome editing. And my hope is that they are being followed in their best interest, meaning to be able to offer them effective treatments if it turns out that they are suffering from health challenges. Well, what appears to be the uh, strongest interest from potential parents on what they'd like to, you know, what kind of outcomes they want in addition to a healthy baby, but what kind of changes are they in mass seeming to, uh, to want? Well, the one thing that it starts off with is the claim that we want healthy children but then there's the second claim, which is that we want healthy children that are genetically related to us. And that's a really important point, because if you think back, I was saying in the early days, we were just reproducing through sexual relations. We then move into a stage where we have assisted human reproduction. And I described the IVF when we make the embryos in, in vitro fertilization. So fertilizing um, the egg outside of the human body. In that context, we could be thinking about transferring or not a particular embryo. Now, if we realize that all of the embryos have an unwanted genetic trait, we would not transfer those embryos. And so then what becomes interesting is can we find amongst the embryos that we've created, embryos that are in scare quotes, healthy, meaning they don't have the particular genetic trait we're trying to avoid, which is a trait, for example, associated with a particular disease. So for example, cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disease or what have you. So in that context, many people have argued, including many clinicians who offer assisted human reproduction, that what's really important is the social part of parenting, not the biological part of parenting. And so in that context, what couples have been offered for a very long time is what we call donor gametes. So if the genetic problem is with the sperm or if the genetic problem is with the eggs, we provide genetic material from another person who has healthy gametes. And we tell people, and I think rightfully so, that the important part of parenting is not the genetic contribution, but the social contribution, the care and the love and the parenting that you provide for many, many years. And so in that context, we've made great strides in terms of understanding that parenting of adopted children is being a real parent, parenting children of uh, Another person in the context, for example, of a new relationship following a divorce, those are your children and you care for them in the same way, that it's not genetic ties, but it's really the emotional and the caring that makes you a parent. What's happening with this technology is some people are keen to kind of reverse that and say, no, 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 what's really important is the genetic ties. So I don't want to use somebody else's genetic material, I want to use my own genetic material. And then the problem becomes, well, depending on the underlying health condition, you may have no embryos that are not going to be affected. If that's the case, and for example, I make 10 embryos using your genetic material and all 10 of them are affected, I can't transfer a healthy embryo. And so then I would say, do you want embryo donation? Do you want egg donation? Do you want sperm donation? 
And the couple says, no, I want you to fix my embryos. And that's the context within which you might still have parents saying, the only way I can have a healthy genetically related child is I need you to manipulate that developing embryo. And so that's the argument that's being made. And amongst the people who are raising concerns about this are questions about, well, do you really understand what it means to be a parent? A parent is about loving and caring a child born. It's not about manipulating genetic material in a dish. Other people are saying, how many, how many of these kind of couples are there in the world? Um, and one example, if you take cystic fibrosis, where you would have a couple where, you know, their only option would be to use this technology, people who do that work suggest it would be one couple every 15 years in the United States. And so some people say, really, we're going to invest how much time, talent and treasure to develop a technology that's going to address this condition once every 15 years for one couple. So, you know, the flip side then, if people are going to argue back is to say, yes, but, you know, don't think about this one case in this one couple. Think about the technology writ large and the future. And then you really start hearing people who will describe themselves as futurists saying, this will allow us to enhance humans, to build better humans, because we're not just going to be looking to try to erase one disease in one couple every 15 years, we're going to be looking to try to make improvements to the human genome for everyone in perpetuity. Now, please appreciate, even if that were possible, it would be in the far distant future. But that's the kind of thing that some people are gesturing at. So the interesting thing is, are we focused on a treatment, which is what we have with somatic genome editing? Are we focused on having children that are genetically related and healthy, which is what we think we're arguing for with heritable human genome editing? And, and please appreciate the difference right there. In the first case, we're treating patients. In the second case, we're not treating anybody. We're making embryos with or without particular traits. And then in the third distant future, we're not treating anything, we're enhancing, we're building better humans. So I think that again gives you some sense about why some people are concerned about this and they would frame it in terms of the slippery slope. So they're saying, today you're talking about a treatment for a patient who's suffering from a genetic condition. Tomorrow you're talking about making babies without that condition. And the day after you're talking about building better humans. Well, I remember, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, I ran into a guy at, at work and he, he, we were talking about this and he said, you know, if it gets to the point where people can successfully be modified and quote unquote improved, at some point there'll be enough of those people where it'll be a disadvantage not to do that. And then it may, may push everyone in a certain direction because you have to, or it may be that people that have access to that resource to be able to do that, then tend to split people into like two societies, the quote unquote improved and then the regular people. Well, I think that that's a very real worry. And uh, in my book, Altered Inheritance, I actually discuss that at length. And I talk about the haves and the have nots in terms of genetics. I talk about the gen rich and the gen poor to use language that was introduced uh, by others before. But really what I'm talking about is we are on the cusp of seeing the possibility of people who are already very privileged 
taking that privilege and entrenching it in their DNA. And that's the context within which I alluded to earlier, deep concerns about ways in which we'll uh, see discrimination played out between those who have the ability to have an enriched genome and those who do not. Now, again, that would be in the far distant future if that were ever possible, but it's really the mindset that people are concerned about, even if there continue to be technological challenges, because what it does is it suggests that we know which traits are preferable and which traits are not, and that's what leads to the discrimination, even if you never succeed from a technological point of view in making those changes. And so people imagine, we'll be able to change height. Well, that means you have made a certain assumption about which kind of, what, you know, what height is preferable. Or we'll change hair color. Well, that assumes that you've made certain assumptions about what's the preferable hair color. And then you get to skin color. And I'm not exaggerating. April of this year, a company in the Ukraine suggested that they would be looking at changing breast size. So some of this is absolutely ridiculous as a goal or an objective, but what it does is it tells you how people are trying to communicate to the broader society that there is better and worse skin color, better and worse breast size, better and worse hair color, better and worse height. And so what you're doing there already is entrenching perspectives that are discriminatory and unhelpful. And so that's well, one of the things to worry about. Well, I mean, if you do it for your, let's say, you know, you do a breast augmentation for yourself, that's your choice. But if you're born, you know, with very small or very large breasts because your parents wanted you to be that way, that's like a whole different ball game. It wasn't your choice. And yeah, you're right. Then someone else's choices are being put onto you. Well, I think the reality of it is at some level, just choosing your sexual partner is making a choice that has implications for your offspring. So in some sense, you're just changing where the locus of the decision-making is. But I think what we're imagining here is a scenario whereby you are bringing your biases into a design project. And that's why it becomes, again, really important to appreciate the trajectory from sexual relations over which the extent of your control is choosing the person that you have sex with, assuming and hoping that it's actually a choice and we're not talking about rape or other kinds of inappropriate sexual behaviors, but that's the limit of your control or constraint to moving into assisted human reproduction where you might be going through a catalog to pick your sperm donor, or you might be using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to pick one embryo over another, to where some people imagine the future with this new technology of genome editing, where you're actually saying, this is a trait I want to build in, or this is a trait I want to remove from this developing embryo or from this sperm or this egg. And that's very different from saying, I have 10 embryos in a dish in front of me, I've done some testing, and I'm going to pick this embryo, which is an embryo that was available for me to choose from versus me taking that same embryo and manipulating it. Because when I do that manipulation, I'm bringing in a different order of decision-making with respect to what is or is not acceptable. So what are some of the uh, upcoming watershed moments as you see? Are there experiments currently in play that we're waiting for the results of that'll really you know guide these discussions or like what what's going to be happening over the next couple of years you think in this field 
Well, I think one of the things that's especially interesting is I made reference earlier to the first international summit that was held in 2015, second international summit held in 2018, and the third international summit is going to be in London, England in March of 2022. So I think it'll be very interesting to see what the conversation looks like at that point and where the emphasis is in terms of the acceptability of heritable human genome editing. But I think the other thing that's really interesting is the backdrop against which this conversation is happening. And that's because uh, independently, I did some research with colleagues where we surveyed or attempted to survey as many countries as possible in the world and we managed to get uh, information about 106 countries. And for those 106 countries, we actually found documents in 96 of the countries. And of those, 75 actually completely prohibit this kind of research. So I think that's especially interesting to see the difference between you know, approximately 200 countries in the world and 75 of them already explicitly prohibit this kind of research. Sorry, Richard, I don't know if you yes. can hear it, but your mute was off and all through that answer, there was a lot of um, other sounds that may be oh, part sure of the recording. I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, do you wanna re-record it or should we just leave it? I don't know what, what happened with the equipment, I'm sorry. I don't know. I think I might just because I know that I got distracted even trying because I think I was hearing birds and a whole bunch of other things. So I'm not even sure what I said. Okay. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind. Um, so I'll just rephrase the question. Well, editor will take that part out. Perfect. Um, so what, what, I mean, essentially in, in condensation over the next few years versus the next 20, what do you think some of the issues will be that will come up and what do you think are some of the technological possibilities? Well, I think there's a number of challenges for the coming years. One of them actually is going to be some changes, I think improvements with respect to the science. And that's because there are a number of people working on something called base editing or prime editing, where instead of making changes to segments um, of the DNA, they'll actually be able to just go in and, and look, if you think about it in terms of changing um, you know, one letter. Uh, you know, so people talk often about the sort of the, the book of life and people know that it's sort of a string of letters um, but the base editing or the prime editing is probably going to be um, a major shift in terms of the possible, in terms of how we think about that. Um, I also think that one of the things that's going to be really interesting is to see where the public conversation goes. I mentioned earlier that there was the first international summit in 2015, the second international summit in 2018, and the third international summit is actually scheduled for March of 2022. So it's gonna be very interesting to see where's the conversation uh, at that point in time. And then beyond that, one of the things that I think is really important is to appreciate the backdrop, the sort of legal and policy backdrop against which these conversations are happening. With colleagues, um, we completed a survey uh, and published it just last year where we tried to get as much information from the, all the countries around the world. In the end, we got information for, from 106 countries. Uh, in those countries, we were able to find relevant documents, policy documents, saying what is or is not permissible for this area of science. And we found those documents for 96 of the 106 countries. And of those 96 um, countries, 
75 explicitly prohibit this area of research, none explicitly permit it. And so I think one of the things that's going to be very interesting is how's the conversation going to go? Are we going to see an increase in the number of countries that prohibit this kind of science? Or are we going to see a shift in terms that prohibit it to some who might permit it? Are we going to see um, international treaties? Are we going to see uh, changes made in terms of where the science is taking place? So I think there's a lot um, up in the air right now in terms of what will happen, what will be seen as possible, but how will people try to shape this um, and whether or not we can find a way of moving towards some kind of broad societal consensus. Well, very good. Francoise, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and then to keep tabs on these issues? Well, if you're really interested in this topic, um, I really would highly recommend my book, Altered Inheritance. And the reason is, is I think the book, which was written for the general public, does a good job of explaining the science in a really simple way, explaining what are the ethical issues, why do people want to use this science, why are people worried about this science, but it then goes on and, and tries to achieve the goal of public empowerment. It's trying to say, if you are interested in these issues, here are some of the things that you want to think about. Here's how you can weigh into the debate, the discussion, the conversation. So I think that's the first thing um, I would suggest. The second thing I would suggest is pay attention to what's happening globally um, in just a few weeks. Uh, the World Health Organization will be issuing reports on the governance of human genome editing. So I would say definitely uh, keep an eye out for that. And more generally, if you're interested in this, uh, you can certainly uh, Google my website, um, which is just my name, francoisebayless.ca, and you'll find a lot more information there as well. Uh, and not just about this topic, but a range of topics in bioethics. Well, very good. Well, Francois, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, great. Thank you. And uh, I hope there's something there for all your listeners. All right. Hold on one second. <laughs>